This morning's reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved is God, so loved us. We also, oh, I'm sorry, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This morning, uh, we're going to be concluding our series on core values. My name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and this morning I've been tasked with the charge to preach our fifth and final uh, core value, outward serving. And once again, I want to remind you, as Daniel said a few weeks ago, these five values uh, about which we are intolerant. Um, We refuse to be a church that does not innately possess these five things. And so this morning we come to our fifth and final one, and let me pray for us as we begin. Father, I ask that you would be exalted today, that you would speak clearly to us, your people, that you would enable me to get out of your way so that you might be heard. God, I pray that you would remove any distractions that might prevent us from hearing from you. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I think many of you have probably heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, for those of you who, hadn't, who haven't, Alexander the Great was, was a powerful leader in ancient Greece. He was most famous for his incredible military success. An interesting fact that I recently heard is that one of the ways that Alexander was able to cultivate such a powerful and ruthless army is that he made it illegal to be a coward in his army. And the way that Alexander enforced this law, as if somebody acted like a coward in battle, they would be brought before him, before Alexander himself, and it was determined, and if it was determined by Alexander that the person had in fact been a coward, they would be killed on the spot. One day, something strange happened. Uh, a young boy was brought before Alexander on charges of cowardice, and yet for some reason, on this day, Alexander was noticeably softer. You could see it in his eyes, in his posture, you could hear it in his tone towards the young boy. Nobody really knows what caused this uncommon gentleness. Maybe it was because the boy was so young, or because maybe the boy reminded Alexander of his own son. Nobody knows, but nonetheless, Alexander was clearly primed to show mercy. And surprisingly, Alexander comes off of his throne and he walks down to meet the boy face to face. And he begins to talk to the boy and he says, boy, what is your name? And the boy peers up at him and he's clearly scared out of his mind and he muttered softly, Alexander, sir. 
And immediately Alexander was taken aback, but maybe he didn't hear the boy correctly, so he asked him again, What is your name? My name is Alexander, sir, the boy said. And in that moment, Alexander the Great's countenance dramatically changed. The people who witnessed the event said they'd never seen rage like that before in Alexander's eyes. And he looks down condescendingly at the boy and he says these words. He said, change your name or change your ways. And he threw the boy out of his presence. Change your name or change your ways. Such powerful and weighty words, aren't they? I wonder if those words might carry more weight in our community. For example, you call yourself a Christian, and yet every day you drive by the homeless men and women on our streets. Change your name or change your ways. You call yourself a Christian, yet you don't even know the names of your neighbors. Change your name or change your ways. You call yourself a Christian, yet you're so obsessed with your own comfort that you don't even know the needs of the people around you. Change your name or change your ways. To the children in the room, you call yourself a Christian, yet you don't even share your toys, and you're terrible at obeying your parents. Change your name or change your ways. Now, before you guys call from my head, I I share that illustration in jest. I'm joking. Children, I'm kidding. That is not a biblical illustration. The Bible does not teach change your name or change your ways. But the reason I share this illustration this morning is because I recognize that we have to be so careful when we enter into this last core value of outward service. We have to be so careful how we approach this topic. It would be so easy for me as a pastor to spend the next 20 minutes talking about how bad you are at serving and to heap all kinds of guilt and shame on you. I could preach a pretty powerful change your name or change your ways sermon. And many of you would leave here motivated to serve at least for a little while. But the problem is that guilt and shame are actually terrible motivators. They don't actually motivate us for very long. And even worse than that, they're rooted in the lies of Satan. As Reverend Steve Brown used to say, it's from the pits of hell and it smells like smoke. So I refuse, based on my biblical convictions, to go there, as easy as it might be. But not only is it not biblical to preach, change your name or change your ways, it's also not very wise. Because a sermon like that assumes that the problem is one of our ignorance. That the reason we don't serve is because we're unaware of our calling to do so. But the reason for our lack of service is clearly not an absence of awareness. I doubt I could find one single person in this room that is unaware of the fact that the Bible calls us to serve. If that's you, raise your hand. Anybody unaware of that fact? We all know that's true. So it's clearly not a lack of information. It's not a cerebral problem, but rather a heart problem that we need to fix. And I say heart problem in the biblical sense, meaning the epicenter of the whole being, the control center of a person, the place that is the nexus of the emotions of the mind and the will. And if we are to be a church that is outward serving, the work must be done there. 
in the heart. Amen? I know no better place to go for this kind of heart work than 1 John. It's here that the heart surgery that we so desperately need begins to take place. And yet you say the word service is not even present in our text. Right, you are. And that's because John uses a far better word. He uses the word love. And Christ Central Church, let me be crystal clear here. When we talk about the core value of outward serving, we're not simply talking about cultivating an army of servers who out of obligation offer up their time, their resources, and their selves for those around them. No, we see what 1 John refers to here is that we are calling forth an army of people who with great joy, overflowing from the love of Christ, serve those around them. That's the calling And church, there's a big difference. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt like you were someone else's project. Amen? Anyone ever felt that? Where you were being served, but all the while you felt as though it was more about the person who was doing the serving than about you. I can tell you from personal experience, that doesn't feel very good. And Lord, help us if that's what we become as a church. Those who put on our service hats and go wandering around this city doing good deeds, all for the purpose of feeling better about ourselves. But instead, instead may we become an army of people who are compelled by genuine love and empathy for the world around us. That's my hope. So as we enter into this, Uh, We seek to foster this value of outward service rooted in love. So let's dive into our text. The text reveals three things for us that of us who are in need of some heart surgery. First, the origin of love. Second, the way of love. And third, the fruit of our love. So let's begin now with the origin of love. Our text begins with an introduction of the theme And this theme is repeated three times in this short section of Scripture. That theme being love one another. And that's the heart of what we're talking about this morning. Loving people. And church, our outward service is directly proportional to our love for others. The more love that we have, the more that we as a church will serve. Now, that's not a novel idea. I'm not going to blow anyone's mind with that insight. Nobody is calling for a book deal. That's just true. Our love for others, if it's real, will inevitably manifest itself in acts of service. Not your guilt and shame over being selfish, but your love for people will be the thing that motivates you. And so John puts forth this bold and many would say impossible proposition. He says, let's love some people. And then he begins being the skilled sociologist that he is, and he refuses to enter into guilt tripping, but he instead begins to do some heart surgery. The first cut that he makes is by way of reminder. Verse 7, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then to drive this point a little further and to avoid any confusion, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What a pregnant statement. So much truth wrapped up in these few words. And I want to try to unpack the key points here one at a time. First, John is declaring that because of the fall, because of sin, love is a substance that is now foreign to humanity. 
Much in the same way that the ability to talk is foreign to an infant, the ability to read is foreign to animals, the ability to drive is foreign to my wife. You get the point. Love is foreign to humanity. We can't do it. All human beings born after Adam are born with a love deficiency. Secondly, love only exists in humanity when God places it supernaturally in us. We can't go find this thing called love. We can't create it. We can't buy it. God has to give it to us. Verse 7, it's from God. Thirdly, God freely gives this gift of love to his children, those whom, verse 7, have been born of God. That's what the prophet Ezekiel is talking about in chapter 36. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2. And you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him. And in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are a follower of Christ, you can rest assured that you have been given a new heart. A heart that is full of love. It is so fundamentally important that you understand and embrace what John is saying here. Love is a gift. It is poured into us by God. Man, that should humble us. We're really not that great. We really aren't. All that is good in us is from Him. And that should shape our understanding of love, but it should also inform us as to how to acquire this elusive thing called love. It should compel us to avoid simply trying harder to love. And it should compel me to simply, not simply demand you to try harder to just do it. Which leads us to our second point this morning, the way to love. John has made clear in verse 7 and 8 that love is a God thing. Something that he created, something intrinsic to him alone something that God graciously bestows upon and inside his children. So the question then is, how do we go about appropriating this gift? How then do we love? Do we just sit back and watch, much like a robot, as God hits the love button on our hard drive and then our body spits out love? Not hardly. Look at verse 9. And this is... In this, the love was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. So as John now moves into the uh, the how, he opens our eyes to the mysterious dynamics of love. He says, love is cultivated through experience. My wife, the one who can't drive, uh, she tells me all the time how much she loves me. I think I can confidently say there's not been a single day since we got married almost eight years ago that she has not communicated to me that she loves me. It's a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful for that. But the truth is that my assurance of her love is not actually rooted in her words. The reason that I know she loves me is because I've tasted it. I've experienced it over and over and over again. 
I experience it with when she sits with me after a long day and listens to me and then prays over me. I experience it when she watches all the kids for four hours so I can watch a silly football game. I experience it when she's patient with me when I'm short-tempered or irritable. I can go on and on and on, but those experiences are the things that assure me far more than her words ever could. John is highlighting here the most glorious display of love ever known to humanity. And yet he's not highlighting it as something for us to marvel at, like a beautiful piece of art or a great movie. We're not innocent bystanders simply observing this love display. No, we're the recipients, the primary beneficiaries of this glorious sacrificial love. And John wants to drive this point home in verse 10. He says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Don't miss this point. John's point is that in this grand display of love, God's not merely paying us back. He's not rewarding us for our performance. No, in fact, we are about as undeserving as it gets. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that we were simply neutral when Christ went to the cross. No, we were in fact in opposition to God. And at that point, in our opposition, he chose to send his only son to die on our behalf. And so we, those who deserve God's wrath, experience love beyond comprehension on the cross. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't touch you, you might be dead. That is good news. What's John getting at here? How does that truth, that experiential truth, help us to apportion love in our lives? How does that help us to love others? Thomas Chalmers wrote an article in the early 1800s that has profoundly impacted my life and helped shape my understanding of discipleship. And the quotable portion of the article that beautifully summarizes all of what Chalmers is trying to say is this. He says, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. I'll say that again. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Daniel talked a few weeks ago about how we are all worshipers, that all of our hearts are set on something. Some of us worship power, money, status, family, you fill in the blank. But the thing is, we all worship, and that which we worship, that which we love, drives our actions. And what Chalmers is getting at here is that we can't simply tell ourselves to stop loving something. We can't create a worship void, if you will. We can't move into a state of non-worship. But thankfully, it's not hopeless. The thing that is the object of our worship can be displaced. It can be removed by something that is more beautiful, more glorious, more worship-worthy. And so maybe now you can see what John's getting at here. You see, the ultimate reason that we don't serve is because our hearts are gripped by other things. We worship created things more than the Creator, which is why heart surgery is needed. And that's what John is getting at. That's what Christ does for us, what He does to us. As we experience his love most profoundly displayed on the cross, our affections abandon whatever it is that they were worshiping and they attach themselves to him. Are you tracking with me? 
John is saying we must position ourselves to receive the love of Christ because that will change your heart. And it is that experience of love that both models for us and empowers us to do something that would otherwise be impossible. How do we practically do that? Let me bring this home. How do we position ourselves to receive Christ's love? I think there's a tendency in the church today to look for something extraordinary, to seek after that mountaintop experience. But that's not what the Scripture points us to. Instead, it points us to what some have termed the Sabbath rhythm of life. You see, the Scriptures encourage us to Hebrews 10 not to not neglect to meet together, to regularly take part in the worship of God. Because, brothers and sisters, it's here that our compass is set, that heart surgery happens through the preached word, through the sacraments, little by little, day by day, week in and week out. James K. Myth, James K. Smith, author of You Are What You Love, says it this way. He says, If the heart is like a compass, an erotic homing device, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the Creator, our magnetic north. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love then, not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. These sort of practices are pedagogies of desire because they are like lectures that inform, they're not like lectures that inform us, but because they are rituals that form and direct our affections. Brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by rituals, pedagogies of desire that are forming your hearts whether you like it or not. And we must come here every week to have our compass reset, recalibrated towards our Creator. If you think that you can function apart from this, from this gathering where our hearts are set on Jesus, you are sorely mistaken. We need our hearts to be transformed day in and day out, not by some mountaintop experience, but by the ordinary practice that God invites us to participate in each and every week. This brings us to our final point this morning. What's the reward for all this? What's the fruit of our love? Look again at verse 12. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What a strange way for John to begin his closing statements, right? No one has ever seen God. Certainly a true statement, but what in the world does that have to do with loving others? Look at the rest of verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us important note that I want to make here. We would assume that John would say, if we love one another, then the love of God abides in us. But that's not what he says. Now he says, if we love one another, then God himself abides in us. 
This is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But then how does that relate to the beginning of verse 12? Brothers and sisters, it's true that no one has ever seen God. However, what John is saying is that if and when we love one another, God himself is present in us, and therefore we make the invisible God visible. That is huge. But visible to whom? I think John wants us to understand this in two different ways. I think it's certainly that God becomes visible to us and to others. Let's start with us. In what ways does loving one another enable us to see God? It appears as though Baubill and Schaumburg, the composers of the musical Les Mis, understood this idea. They conclude the musical masterpiece with these words, to love one another, to love, excuse me, to love another person is to see the face of God. Again, one would assume that the quote would be, to love another is to exhibit or display the face of God. The verb seems off, but the point is the quote is, that the quote is actually reflective here. It's saying that when we love another person, we, the lover, see the face of God. Brothers and sisters, as we cultivate the experience of receiving the love of God in our lives, it changes us. It reforms our hearts, and what happens is we inadvertently become more like God. Love becomes what we are characterized by, and we, as we live into that reformed self, we see the face of God. I was very close to my uncle growing up, and he passed away when I was a senior in high school, but he had a profound impact on my life for the 17 or so years that I knew him. He was so fun. He really pushed the envelope in life, and he, he had this unique gift of making those around him feel both terror and excitement all at the same time. And I learned that from him, and that became a part of who I am. And so often I find myself living into that lay of, way of life, producing in others simultaneous terror and excitement. And when I find myself living that way, I often see his face because I'm reminded of who he was and the indelible mark that he has made on me. God is love. And the mark that he leaves on us is his love. And that love changes us. It becomes a part of us, who we are. And then when we live into that, we see his face. But it's not just us who experience this glorious fruit of seeing God's face. Not only do we see God's face when we love, but we also present a picture to a watching world of who God is. Our love becomes our greatest witness. I want to close with a story that I think beautifully portrays this idea. Uh, while in seminary, I had the privilege of sitting under Reverend Steve Brown, and, and he told this story one day in class. I'm going to share it with you. Dr. Brown shared how he and his family developed a pattern of bringing wayward children into their home. Kids that had either been abused or abandoned by their parents would come and stay with the Browns for a season. And one time, one of those kids was with the Browns on a family beach vacation. And the vacation was going great. Everyone was getting along, playing well together. They were having a blast. And then towards the end of the day, this young girl asked if she could go on a walk with Steve. 
And as they strolled down the beach, Steve looked down at this girl and he saw tears streaming down her eyes. And he stopped and he put his arm around her and he said, what's wrong, sweetheart? And she looked up at him through tear-filled eyes and she said these words. She said, I wish I had a family like yours and I wish I had a dad like you. Brothers and sisters, as we lovingly serve each other and those around us, not only do we see God's face, but we paint a glorious picture of who he really is for all to see. We enable those who've never seen to see God in all his splendor and glory. And if we do that, I promise you, this city of Durham will look at us and they will say, I wish I had a family like yours and I wish I had a dad like him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we want to be a church that serves and we know that we can't just muster up that kind of love in ourselves. We can't create it. It's from you. It's a gift from you. So we ask that you would form that in us. Lord, as we come here week in and week out, would you shape our hearts? Would you fill us with your love? And would that love produce in us a passion for service that we might serve and be served? And God, would this city see that service and would they long to be a part of this family? Would they long to experience your love, the love of a perfect father? I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.